We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 19. Uh, if you want to make your way there, 2 Samuel chapter 19. We're going to be working our way here through the book uh, of 2 Samuel. Uh, title of the message today is Elvis has left the building. Uh, <laughs> you'll understand that as we go. Um, and really the big idea is how to bring the king back to the rightful place of the throne in your life. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, here's, here's the draw. And I, and I realize it's, it's first Sunday after Easter. We have a lot of people maybe joining us for the first time, just jumping on board. So I'm going to bring you up to speed, sort of give you a 30,000 foot view of, uh, where we've been, where we're at, where we're going. So we're in the book of Second Samuel. We've actually been going through the books of First and Second Samuel for a couple of years now. And, um, and the books of First and Second Samuel mark a huge transition in the history of Israel. Uh, from the time of the judges to the co- time of the kings uh, and the prophets. And they span a little bit over 100, 110 year period of time. We're about 100 years into uh, the history here. And, and so the, hand, the, the, the issue at hand in this book is leadership. And, and you know, it, it, the, the idea here is that, you know, the Bible makes it very clear that this time, during the, the time of the judges, the, the, the transition between the judges and the, and the kings and the prophets, it was a time when they had no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's how the Bible describes this period of time, which is a great description of our day and age today. Right? Uh, everybody just sort of does what's right in their own eyes. So, so the issue is leadership. And, and it, you know, it's, it, it's been said that, that everything rises or falls uh, on leadership. And so we got to figure out who's the boss, who's going to rule, who's going to reign, who is going to call the shots. And <clears throat> everything rising and falling on leadership is especially true in the kingdom of God when you're figuring out who we're going to follow. Your walk as a man or a woman of God, your uh, works in this world, your family's well-being, all of those are going to rise and fall on leadership. And so over the past couple of years, we, we've, we've covered about 100 years worth of, of uh, Israel's history here in First and Second Samuel, and within a six weeks, eight weeks, we're going to be done with Second Samuel altogether. And what we've watched is the nation of Israel struggle with this issue of leadership. And, uh, you know, it began with the birth and the rise of the prophet Samuel, uh, with the nation learning to follow his lead, and then it transitioned and continued through the rise and the fall of King Saul, Israel's first king, and then now it continues uh, through the anointing and through the trials of King David. And the Bible reserves the most space and the most words to talk about David almost more than anybody else. Jesus beats him. The um, Bible talks a lot more about Jesus. But, but David is the runner-up. He's the close second. The Bible talks a lot about King David. And, and the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. Um, and certainly he was that, but he was far from perfect. David, uh, despite being the man after God's own heart, he's a guy that did some pretty stupid stuff. He did some pretty heinous stuff. I mean, David, basically, he was subject to the same temptations and struggles and trials that we all face. And so what happened in David's life, during his reign, he stumbled and he began to compromise, started to multiply wives to himself, something God cautions against, didn't want the kings to be doing that, he, he was doing that, took his foot off the gas spiritually, began to coast, and in that place of, of drifting from God, uh, he, he committed sexual sin, he saw his neighbor there, uh, Bathsheba, and her husband was away, and so, man, he, you know, made a play on her and committed an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, and then her husband Uriah had him murdered to cover it up. I mean, this is the guy that the Bible calls the man after God's own heart. And clearly, those kind of actions are not after God's own heart. But thank God that our Father is a a loving Father, a Father who cleanses us from all unrighteousness and who desires to restore us. And that's, in fact, what he did with David. God uh, forgave David, and he restored David. And and so God, you know, doing this, this wonderful work in David's life, of restoration, of cleansing, of forgiveness. And God promises to do that in your life. Promises to do that 
in my life. And we see demonstrated in David just how gracious God is and what a wonderful work uh, that, it, that God does. And so even though David repented, even though David had that, that, that season of sin, but he repented and was restored, the damage was still done. His kids were messed up, and it was squarely David's fault. And so his son Amnon uh, followed David's example of sexual sin, and Amnon uh, raped his half-sister Tamar. And, and so this happened. Now David, he didn't really follow through as he should have, uh, with, with Amnon, and so Amnon's brother Absalom, who was Tamar's full brother, Amnon's half-brother, he was upset with his father because his father wasn't there for the follow-through and just seething with anger, waits two full years for David to do something about it. David doesn't do what he should do about it, so, so Absalom, he takes matters into his own hand, and he follows his father's example of handling things with violence. Absalom murders Amnon, his brother. And so that puts Absalom in a place where he's out running for his life. He's estranged from his father. Joab, one of David's main generals, steps in, tries to, you know, broker a, 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 you know, a, a reconciliation between Absalom and his dad. But the problem is Absalom wasn't repentant. And so what happened then was that Absalom coming back in Without repentance, well, now he's got an axe to grind with his dad because he still loathes his father. He disrespects his father, holds him to blame for what ultimately happened to Tamar and what didn't happen to Amnon, has no remorse for killing Amnon. And so now Absalom, back in this place, he begins to, to win the hearts of the people. And he begins to sow the seeds of discord and he perpetuates actually a coup and begins to now go, uh, you know, perpetuate this, this attack against David, runs David out of town. And David, he takes the path of, well, you know, he, he recognizes, well, he's won the hearts of the people, and this is going to be bloody, and this is going to be ugly. And if I stick around here, and if I fight this out with my son, not only am I going to be fighting with my son, but a lot of innocent people are going to get hurt. So David takes the godly route, and he just decides he's going to leave. He bails from Jerusalem, and there's a contingent of people that follow after him, but the vast majority of the people fall behind Absalom, and they they support Absalom. But David, you know, goes out, he crosses, you know, over the Kidron Valley, you know, up the Mount of Olives, and on his way, and uh, takes, you know, the, the escape, and he just turns himself over to the Lord, just says, God... You know, if you, if you want to give me the kingdom, then you're going to work all this out. If you want to take it from me, it's your prerogative. But I'm going to do this, and I'm going to put this in your hand just for the benefit of the people. Well, what ends up happening then is Absalom uh, goes after his dad. Uh, and uh, the, they, get, they get a whole, the, the entire Israel army to go after David to kill David. And, um, and so there is, you know, the, the attack that's coming. Now, David... When the attack is coming, he then divides his forces among three different generals, Joab being one of them and two other guys, and they divide their forces and they arrange to, to fight this vast, they're vastly outnumbered, but because they've divided their forces and because they're fighting in a, in a very thick wooded area, the, the battle is reduced from a big mass of troops down to small manageable skirmishes, and of course, David wins. He's God's anointed, God's hand is upon him, and so they fight and they defeat the forces that are coming against him. Well, Absalom himself is one of the guys that is, is coming uh, you know, in the battle, and, and he's riding a donkey, uh, not exactly the most strategic thing, but he's riding a donkey into battle, and he gets his hair caught in, in one of the trees, and so there he is swinging like a pinata, and somebody comes and they tell Joab, hey, Absalom is there, and he's, he's stuck in a tree. And he's like, why didn't you kill him? He's like, because David made a point of telling, telling all of us that you know, he didn't want any of us hurting Absalom. And that's going to factor into our lesson today. We're going to get into that. But David made a point, don't hurt Absalom. And so Joab's like, what are you, nuts? There he is. You got the pinata beat on it. So he, he takes three spears and he runs Absalom through. And then he's got 10 armor bearers with him and they finish him off. And so they kill Absalom. And so this is where we pick it up now. With Absalom killed, the question now becomes, who is Israel going to follow as their king? 
And, and really the big idea of the message here for us by way of application for our lives is how do we restore the true king to our hearts as well. And so we're going to pick it up in context. If, if, uh, if, you're, if you've got an electronic Bible, you want to open to chapter 18 because to pick up the context, I'm going, to, I'm going to go and I'm going to begin in 18. We'll pick it up in verse 32. And so at this season, at this point where we pick it up, the battle is going, and David has sent his forces out to go fight Absalom, but, but the big question mark is, what's the status of Absalom? And David has told his troops, don't hurt, don't hurt him, please don't hurt him. And, and the, Absalom's caused all kinds of trouble. We're going to see 20,000 people were killed in this battle, and that is all laid squarely in Absalom's lap. It's laid in, the, the blame is laid in David's lap as well. And so here, the thing driving him isn't righteousness, isn't justice, it's, I just want my kid to be okay. So now the messengers are coming back, and so verse 32, uh, this Cushite messenger comes with the bad news. And, he's, and so the king says to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? And so the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. In other words, he is dead as a mackerel, he's dead. And so verse 33, then the king was deeply moved and he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he wept, he said thus, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So five times, just over and over again, the wail of his heart, my son, my son, my son. Verse, chapter 19, verse one, and Joab was told, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom, and so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, <clears throat> for the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son, and the people stole back into the city that day, as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. And so this should have been a day of great rejoicing, should have been cause for, you know, a victory dance. And hey, look, we got this guy who's caused us nothing but anguish and sorrow and heartache, and he's a rebellious son, and the, we've, we've won the war, and the enemy has been defeated, and it should have been a day of rejoicing, but because of the way David reacted to it, now all the people, they're sneaking back in like they lost the battle. Why? Well, because the king doesn't see it as a rejoicing matter. The king, verse 4, covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So that's all he can say. Oh, my son, oh, my son. Verse 5, then Joab came into the house to the king, and he said, today you have disgraced all your servants who have today saved your life. And the way that's written in the Hebrew, Joab is yelling at the top of his lungs here. That's the way that it's written. And so, you know, here he's saying, you've disgraced. These guys, these guys saved your life. Your sorry butt is what he's saying. This isn't Joab coming to David as the king and saying, oh, hey, boss, and being all respectful. No, this is Joab all up in David's grill and just spit coming out of his mouth, yelling at the top of his lungs, saying, you know, uh, today you've disgraced all your servants who have today saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines. He says, and here's how you've disgraced them, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. And so what he's saying there, when he says, um, today you regard neither princes nor servants, again in the Hebrew, what he's saying literally there, he says, look, it's as if, it's as if your people don't even exist. That's literally what he's saying there. He goes, you, you don't even care. Look, David, 20,000 people died today. And that's a big number even in modern warfare. We're talking hand-to-hand combat. It was a bloodbath. And David, all he can do is go, oh, my son, my son. And Joab's like, how about 20,000 other families right now that are screaming out, my son, my son. And to you, it's as if they don't even exist. So he is all kinds of up in David's face here, just yelling at him. And he says, now, therefore, verse 7, arise, 
Go out and speak comfort to your servants. And that word, that phrase, comfort to your servants, it means literally speak to their hearts. And none of this is in my notes, but, but it's just a point of application that we all lead on some level. And what Joab is telling David here is get over yourself for crying out loud. You're a leader of men and you're a leader of women. And you need to recognize that your job is to speak to their hearts even though your heart is breaking. As mom or as dad, our job is to get over ourselves and to speak to the hearts of our kids, get to the hearts of our kids. And it's not just a matter of holding their feet to the fire and making sure that they obey, but we have to understand that we need to bring their heart along in the process. And so this is good counsel from Joab. He's like, look, you need to get on it. You need to get over yourself. You need to stop focusing on, oh, my son, oh, my son. Start remembering there's 20,000 other sons out there. And he says, you need to go speak, you need to go speak comfort to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. You're going to lose them, man, just because you're all self-absorbed and consumed by yourself and you're not even concerned about them. They're going to pick up on that. They're going to all, every last one, bail on you. And so he says, not one will stay with you this night and that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. And then, verse 8, the king arose and he sat in the gate and they told all the people saying, there's the king sitting in the gate. And so all the people came before the king for every one of Israel had fled to his tent. And so what's implied here, it doesn't tell us this, but it implies this, that David did exactly that, that he went, he sat in the gate, which is the position where the king would sit. The people would then come to him and he would speak words of comfort to his people. And so he heeded Joab's counsel there. Again, the big idea of our text today is how do we restore the true king to the throne? If you're taking notes, our first point here in these first eight verses is that the rebellious king must die. That's the first thing that has to happen. The rebellious king must die. Again, David gave those strict instructions saying, look, don't, don't harm Absalom. Don't touch, don't touch a hair on his head. And, and, so, and that was his sole focus. And Joab is sick of it. And, you know, Joab's thing is, dude, all you care about is your son. You don't care about 20,000 other sons. You don't care about the great sacrifices that your people made. You, know, you don't care even that we have the victory. You don't care about any of that. Now, all of this sounds harsh on the surface. I mean, here's Joab yelling, you know, just that spit flying out of his mouth yelling, finger in the chest kind of yelling at a guy whose son just died. And it sounds really harsh, but he's right. Here's the point. The only end to rebellion, the only way to restore the true king is that you have to kill the treasonous son. But that was a price that David wasn't willing to pay. Absolutely unwilling to pay. Five times he's like, oh, my son, my son, my son. That's just in chapter 18. Then you get to verse 19. He's singing the same song. Oh, my son, my son, my son. And then he says this. He says, if only I had died in your place. And what we have here is a picture of what we celebrated last week at Easter. That's absolutely what we see here. Because because David is the precursor to the son of David, Jesus Christ. And so what we see in David, that what David as king would not do, and that he was unwilling to carry out justice at great personal cost and to kill the rebel son who had caused that division, who had caused the king to be removed from the throne. He was unwilling to do this. And what David as king could not do, as he lamented, if only I had died in your place. Well, David couldn't do that. And so what he was unwilling to do and what he could not do, listen, God as king did do in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God worked justice by causing the treasonous son to be killed On our behalf, the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God took your sin and my sin and he placed it on Jesus Christ and made Jesus Christ the rebellious son who had to die. And because God was willing to give his son to die for us we might have the hope of eternal life. And the only way that the true king can take the throne on the heart, 
the throne of our heart if we by faith embrace and receive the gift of salvation that God has made available to us in the death and the burial and the resurrection of the treasonous son. Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. And he rose on the third day conquering Satan, sin, and death. And the Bible says that that's, that's, that's available for all of us. Jesus died instead of us. He took, the, the, took upon himself the fullness of the curse of our sins. And so Absalom, the, the rebellious son, he's died. And, and David, at first, you know, all he can do is you know, be wrapped up in himself, but Joab gives him this good counsel. He says, you need, to, you need to go appear before the people. You need to encourage your troops. And so finally, David goes. He takes the position at the gate. And you'll notice in verse 8, it says that all the people came to him. Now, that's not all the people. That's all the people that followed David. David, when he left Jerusalem, had a contingent of people that went with him. And so when it says all the people came to him at the gate, that's the people that, it, that, that the text is referring to. But it's not everyone. It's not all the people. It brings us to our second point. Not only does the, rebell- the rebellious king must die for us to, to restore the true king to the throne, but secondly, the true king must be welcomed back. The true king must be welcomed back. Verse 9, it says, Now all the people, now this is not referring to all the people that followed David, this is talking about all the people that followed Absalom, all the people of Israel. And so it says, now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king saved us from the hands of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he's fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, has died in battle. And now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king. Now, who are they talking to when they say, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? Well, could they be talking one to another because they're in a dispute? And so this is those who want to bring David back, talking to those who don't want to bring David back. Yeah, that could be part of it. (coughs) Could they be talking to David? Because at this point, David's not coming. And we're going to see uh, in in, uh, the next verse that David's going to give the counsel that says, you know, this word's come to my house. That, 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 you know, talking to the elders and the leaders of Israel, that you guys aren't willing to have me come back. So, so yeah, it could be that the word came to them, but the, but the bigger bullseye, bigger face on the bullseye, is that the people are talking to the, to the elders of Israel. They're talking there to, to, the, to the, the elders in the, uh, of Judah. And, and they're saying, you know, what, what, what's going on here? So what you have here is that the people are divided, okay? Okay. Um, the, the, the horse they bet on lost, okay? And so now all the people are confused and they're all divided. And you've got those contingent of them that are willing to admit defeat. Like, oh man, we, we bet on the wrong team. And, and then you've got the other contingent that, you know, they, they know they've lost, but, but they're not willing or ready to, to admit defeat and have the right king return to his rightful place. And, and the result is that you've got division, you've got strife, and you've got confusion. And listen, this is always the result when the wrong king is on the throne. When the wrong king is on the throne, the outcome is always strife and division and confusion. Listen to what Proverbs 29 verse 2 says. It says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And that word groan, literally, it means to mourn in the Hebrew. That's what it means. And so when you, when you have a wicked man ruling, it, it leads inevitably to mourning. And, and, and why? Well, listen, spiritually speaking, the same is true in your life. When you have the righteous king, Jesus Christ, on the throne of your heart, the result is rejoicing. Rejoicing for you, rejoicing for your spouse, rejoicing for your children when the righteous king is on the throne of your heart. But if the throne of your heart is occupied by an unrighteous king, what's going to happen? The result will be mourning. Why? Because every single other king that you are going to invite onto the throne of your heart is, is, an in, is, 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 is affected by, by a de- demonic manifestation 
So whether, whether the, the, the thing that's got the throne of your heart is you, whether the thing that's got the throne of your heart is your spouse or your children that you allow to be that thing that takes the throne of your heart, all of it ultimately is going to fulfill what the agenda of Satan is, and that's to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so the result will be mourning. This thing will steal your joy. It will kill your relationships. It will destroy your dreams. And so what happens then when the unrighteous king is unseated from your throne, which is an inevitability, it will happen. So what happens then when that unrighteous king is unseated from your throne, there's now a vacuum that needs to be filled. And so we have a choice. We can either at that moment recognize, I've trusted in the wrong thing. I bet on the wrong horse. And I can now cry out to the true and the living king to take that place on the throne of my heart. Or I can, in this place of rebellion, in this place of confusion, in this place of, of opposition, then I can, I can be shopping for another contender for the throne of my heart. It's interesting there, as, as, as you read through this, and um, we see that it says in verse 9, now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel. That word dispute, um, it, it literally, I guess the best definition I could give for that word is umpire. And it, and it can basically, it can, it can, one translation is that, that it's, a, it's a ruling, it's an umpiring. But the translation that most fits here is, and, and I guess it's complicated, the best way I could describe it is this. You go to a game and the, and the, the umpire makes a call, the ref makes a call, and then they put it up on the screen and everybody sees the call and all of a sudden they're all like, ref, you suck, ref, you suck, right? That's what's going on here is that the, the, the call has been made, the king has, has died and now you got a group of people that go, yeah, our team sucks. This is, this is our situation. And you got a whole other group of people who are unwilling to admit defeat, and their response is, ref, you suck. This is, this is what's going on here. So, so you've got this whole dynamic that's at play with the people, and that's always the result when the wrong king is on the throne of your heart. Now, these are the days that we live in today. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 24. He said, he was asked about the end of the world, basically, what's, how, what are the signs of, of your coming and the end of the world and so on. <clears throat> and he said, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And all of these are the beginning of sorrows, Jesus said. Now, Paul articulates a little bit about this, this thing with, with Timothy. He's talking to Timothy, and he basically, Paul goes to the etiology of what Jesus has just talked about. He's going to the causative effects that, that perpetuate what Jesus is talking about. Here's what Paul says. He says, know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. What's going on here is that the day and age in which, in which we live in is that people invite an unrighteous king to take the throne of their hearts, and then what happens is inevitably that unrighteous king is going to let them down. There's going to be death. There's going to be destruction. There's going to be defeat. There's going to be anger. There's going to be confusing confusion. And rather than admitting defeat and saying, I just bet on the wrong team. I bet on the wrong horse. I need to repent and I need to ask the true and living king, Jesus Christ, to come and take residence in my heart. Rather than do that, people intently and defiantly live a life that basically says, ref, you suck, and I don't want to listen to that. And so then in living that way, they become the things that we're reading here. Listen to what Alan Redpath said. He said, the desperate need of this poor world is for peace and rest, for liberty and freedom, for justice and deliverance. None of these things are possible except, listen, under the rule of the king of righteousness. That's exactly what's going on here. 
And so you've got a whole contingent of people who bet on the wrong horse, who rejected the true and living king, and now they've been confronted with the error of their ways, and and a good majority of them are saying, we need to bring the, the true king back, and a small group of them are resisting and saying, no, 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 you know, we're, we're holding out kind of deal. So they're divided. What's the answer? Brings us to our third and final point. The true king demands devotion. The true king demands devotion. Verse 11, so King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Now, you'll recall these guys are with David. During the rebellion, when David left, he left the priests there behind to to, to, to make sure that they could direct things in his absence and get information to him. <clears throat> and so now he sends to them because they're in Jerusalem. And he says, speak to the elders of Judah, saying, why are you the last to bring the king back to his house since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house? The words of all Israel basically are saying, let's bring David back. And now, you know, the, the, the elders of Judah are holding out. So he says, what, what gives, guys? Verse 12, you're my brethren. You're my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? Verse 13, and say to Amasa. Now, remember, Amasa was the guy that Absalom put in charge. He was the general that Absalom put in charge of his army. So when Israel turned on David and went and attacked David, Amasa was leading all the forces, and they lost, okay? And so now what he goes on to say is he goes, say to Amasa, verse 13, are you not my bone and my flesh, because he's related to Amasa, he's also related to Joab, he says, God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. You're like, what? Here, David has just won this battle over, against overwhelming odds, and his general, Joab, is going to get sacked, and he says, I'll take the losing general, and I'll bring him on my team. What is up with that? Well, David's crazy like a fox, and part of the thing that he realizes is that these guys are, are not w- willing yet to bring the true king back, David, back. And so what he does, because they're in that place. You put yourself in their position. And what they're thinking is, well, we fought against this guy. So if we welcome this guy back, he's going to kill us. He's going he's to go after us. So what David wants them to understand is, guys, that's not my heart. My heart isn't to come back, scorched earth, and, and, and you know, start killing people. I want to bring reconciliation. Really, truly, the picture of what David's trying to do here is exactly what Abraham Lincoln did during the Civil War. When the North won, they didn't go and start punishing the South. They didn't start throwing people in prison. They didn't start hanging people for treason. They didn't do any of that. What did they do? They pardoned everybody. Why? Because Lincoln wanted to perpetuate healing. He wanted to bring unity. He wanted to heal a hurt nation. And so this is what David's trying to do here. And he recognizes, if I make a mass of my general, then the message is going to go loud and clear. Guys, I'm coming with an olive branch. Just welcome me back. And I want it to be uniform. I, I, I demand devotion. You guys don't want to welcome me back? I ain't coming back. And, and what we have to understand, this is what's going on here. So he says, You know, he's going to be my general, and this is like what I'm going to do in verse 14. It says, so he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. So it has the effect that David wanted. He wanted them to understand, listen, I want to come back as your king. But I'm not going to force my reign on you. It has to be a choice. It has to be you agreeing that you want me to come back. Listen, the, the implication for us is loud and clear because this is the heart of God for you and for me. God will not force his reign on you. He will not, you know, say, look, I'm going to take the throne of your heart, whether you like it or not. He won't do that. He stands at the door of your heart and he knocks 
and he invites you to open the door of your heart and to say, please come, be the ruler in my life, be my king, and take the seat on the throne of my heart. But he won't do that if you don't invite him. Our hearts have to be swayed by the work of the word of God through the Holy Spirit. This is what God does. Now, I think about Peter in Acts chapter 2. And you'll recall, Acts chapter 2, Jesus has, has risen from the dead. He's ascended to, to the throne. He's told his disciples, wait for the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit. If you wait upon him, you're not ready. To, you've been with me for three and a half years. I've trained you up and all of that. But you're not ready to go out without the filling of the Holy Spirit. So they're there and they're, they're, they're waiting and God pours out his Holy Spirit. And now being filled with the Holy Spirit, the disciples begin to, to praise God. And God gives each of them a specific tongue to speak in. And the word that's used there, it's dialect. They're each speaking supernaturally a different dialect. Why? Well, because the people that had all gathered together in Jerusalem at that time were from all over the place, and they all spoke different languages and dialects. And so what God wanted to do was to to speak to them through his disciples, and so supernaturally enabled them, empowered them to all praise and proclaim, the Bible says, the wonderful works of God in each language that the people spoke. And so when the people saw it, Many people are moved and they're amazed. Some of the people are skeptical. They're like, those guys are drunk. And, and, and so Peter steps up. He's like, okay, I'm going I'm to preach a message here. So he starts going forward. He's preaching the message. And he basically says, look, Wayne drunk. This is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And he quotes it, you know, how, you know, in the last days, the, the old men are going to dream dreams. The young men are going to have visions. And, and you know, God's, they're going to speak with different tongues and so on. So he starts prophesying. And he starts preaching. And, and he's just telling them what's up. And so he gets to the place where they're completely moved by his message. And it concludes with this. I'll put it on the screen. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, who, by the way, you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And now when they heard this, here's the point, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the, or the, rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Some translations read, what shall we do to be saved, kind of thing. And that's exactly what's going on in their hearts. They're like, we believe what you're saying. What do we do? And here's what Peter said. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to all your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God Will call, and this is what God is going for. Listen for you today, and and you know this idea of repenting. We think of this in light of, uh, you know, oh, I, I I've never I've never been saved. I've never invited Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior, and 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 I need to repent, and I need to do that. We think about it in those terms, and certainly, you know, that applies. I mean, we had people in first service, and I'm always amazed. By the way, let me just say this: we had we had almost fifty people make professions of faith in Christ on our Easter services. Almost just under 50 people. Yeah, you can, pray, you can clap. That's amazing. And the week before that, we had like a dozen people make professions of faith in Christ. And, and every single week, I mean, you guys know more often than not, I'm giving an invitation for people to get saved. And I was joking with my elders. I'm like, I mean, you know, we're a church. It's, you know, average Sunday attendance, 700 adults. It's like, you know, at some point, everybody's going to be, I'm going to give an invitation, and it's going to be like, the, you know, I fished the pond clean, you know? And, and, but every week, we're preaching the gospel, and people come forward. This morning, I, I'm, I'm teaching this, and I, I'm teaching what the message that Peter's preaching. And the big idea, in case you've missed it, big idea of this whole text is that God wants the throne of your heart. He wants your heart. He wants you. And, and so, so we, we hear about repenting, and we think, okay, it's, this is about being saved. And it certainly is. Maybe today you're here, you don't know where you're going to spend eternity. Maybe today you're here and you're like Israel and you're like, I rejected the true and living king and I've just done too much and, and God's coming back and he's ticked off. And, and so like, you know, I've just done too much. We, we had one little gal in, in one of the services, committed her life to the Lord last week and, and she's just in tears, so grateful for God's grace because of all that she's done. This is this young lady. 
And she's like, I've just done too much. <laughs> I'm like, oh, little girl, you got your whole life to repent of stuff that you've done that you just are so, you know, and here you are in the place where you're just so overwhelmed that God would love you and forgive you. He does. So maybe today you're in that place and you're, you're thinking, man, I've done too much. No, there's nothing you can do, Romans chapter eight says, to separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and I'm gonna give an invitation at the end of the message today. If you need to know for sure that you're going to heaven, that when you die, that God's gonna receive you unto himself, you can cry out today. You can ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior and he wants to save you because he loves you. Because he died for you. But also this word of repentance, and I believe that there's a contingent here, if first service is any indication. Some of y'all, because let's keep it in context. What happened here? You had a nation of people who David at one time was their king, and then they rejected him. And so what do they need to do? They need to invite him back onto the throne of their hearts. And I think there's a contingent of people here today who at one time Jesus was your king on the throne of your heart. And then maybe today you would have to confess and admit, and maybe even right now the Holy Spirit's knocking on your heart and saying, this is you that you've walked away from the Lord, that you've wandered, that you have put something else on the throne of your heart. You know, Romans chapter 12 talks about how we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is our reasonable service. And the problem with a living sacrifice is that it crawls off the altar. And sometimes we present our bodies and we live as a living sacrifice and then we wander away from God. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've wandered away from God and God would say to you, you know what, I love you. But listen, you got to come back, and it's got to be your invitation. I'm not going to force myself on you. And so God might be saying to you, look, repent. Repent. You know, the other thing that, that just amazes me about our text here is just that verse 13 when he makes a point of saying, you know what, tell Amasa that he's going to be my general. Um, in Ephesians chapter 2, you don't have to necessarily turn there if you don't want to. I'm going to read out of that. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to read 10 verses out of it. But in Ephesians chapter 2, um, there's this amazing picture of what God does in our lives. Um, Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses, and sins in which you once walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once <coughs> conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. In other words, we're, we're all ha- at one time separated from God, sinners by nature and by choice, and, and completely bound for hell, verse 4, but God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. The Bible says God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's the initiator. He's asking you to respond. That's the idea here. Verse six, and he says, and he raised us up together and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, for by grace, he says, you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the whole picture here is, look, God saved you, he did it, he gives you a future, he gives you a hope, you have the hope of eternity in heaven with him, you have the hope of, a, of, a, of receiving an inheritance in Jesus Christ. There's this great picture, but here's what stands out to me, verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship. That word means work of art. It means poem. Carefully crafted you are. Every last detail of your life God has crafted and you are his work of art. So many of us think of ourselves as a piece of work, but we are God's work of art. And, And here's what he says, created in Christ Jesus for, listen, good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, listen, here's the point. We see this picture of, God, of David going to Amasa and saying, look, I'm going to make you my general. And, and, and the picture is this. Not only doesn't God want to kill you, 
Yeah, okay, look, what was Amasa doing? He was leading the forces that were trying to kill David. And David goes, not only am I not going to kill you, but I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to give you a position of responsibility. You're going to lead my forces. God says to you today, look, you're not disqualified. You, you, listen, I love you. I've forgiven you. Your sins in Christ Jesus are have cast as far as the east is from the west, and you're not damaged goods. You, there, there, I got a future and a hope for you. I got a work that I want to do in you and through you. And so, so there's this amazing promise that we have here in Christ Jesus. It's absolutely spectacular. And so back in 2 Samuel, what we see is that David, with all of these words, verse 14, he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, and so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. Here's what they said. They said, David, we want you back on the throne. We want you to be our king again. Some of you today, you need to make that profession. Some of you today, you need to pray and say, God, I want you back on the throne of my heart. I need to make that profession today. Now, I could end it right there, but there's such a wonderful picture just to put the exclamation point on this. I just want to go a few more verses. First of all, verse 15, notice what happens next. It says, then the king returned, and he came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. And I just want to point out the significance of Gilgal. If you're a student of scripture, you'll remember that Gilgal is, it's, a, it's a town about 20 miles from Jerusalem, and this is the place, the very first place, when Joshua and the Israelites uh, were, were crossing over into the promised land, this is where they camped. And what they did there is, this is the place where the men of the new generation were circumcised, and they entered into that covenant with God. And it's the exact place, the same place, where when, when Saul was made king, Samuel renewed the covenant there at Gilgal, same place, and, and entering into this covenant. And so now what's happening here, even though the text doesn't tell us, it's reasonable to assume what happened there at Gilgal is that the nation of Israel, now as they're accepting, receiving back their king to the throne, is that they've entered into this new covenant. You and I, listen, with Jesus Christ, the son of David, when we invite him to be on the throne of our hearts, we enter into a new covenant with God. It's a covenant of his body and of his blood. When we partake of communion, we're celebrating this new covenant that is available to us, that our sins can be cleansed, not from works, not from doing good and trying harder, but our sins can be forgiven, trusting Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. It's this new covenant. And so there's this beautiful significance of what happens there. Well, not only that, but the additional exclamation point, verse 16, it says, and Shimei, <coughs> the son of Gera. You guys remember Shimei? When Absalom was running David out of town and he was running for his life, Shimei's the dude that showed up and started cursing David. He was one of David's subjects. He was a son, you know, part of, the, of Saul's family, the king who, who was removed by God, who David replaced. And apparently Shimei, always there, just wanted to, to give the boss, you know, the, the, the middle finger. I mean, he was just really upset with David, you know. And so there he was, and as soon as David got run out of town... Shimei jumps on, starts cursing David, starts throwing rocks at David, the whole thing. That's, this is the dude, right? Okay, so what's up, Shimei? So there, verse 16, Shimei, son of Gera, a Benjamite, who was from Behurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him. And they went over the Jordan before the king, and then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. Now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Why? Because David's back in charge now, and so he recognizes, I'm in deep weeds. Man, this is not going to go well. So he falls down um, before the king when he'd crossed the Jordan. So he's the first guy to meet him there. And here's what he says. He says to the king, 
Do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my Lord, you, you, know, you know all that stuff I said? You know, the, the, the rocks and stuff. Can you just forget all of that stuff, please, right? That's what he's saying. So, on, you know, the day that my Lord left Jerusalem, that the king should take, please don't take it to heart. For I, verse 20, your servant know that I have sinned. And therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord, the king. Now, some people say that this ain't right. And what you're going to see before we finish the book here is that when David is getting ready to check out and he's turning the kingdom over to his, his, his son, uh, Solomon, he's going to warn Solomon and say, keep an eye on Shimei. I want you to keep your eye on that guy. And Shimei, sure enough, is going to, he's going to betray Solomon and Solomon's going to kill Shimei. That's, you know, spoiler alert, too late. That's what's coming in the future. But so some people say this is, just, this is bogus and that he's not really repentant here. I, I, I don't see it. Because you see him assuming a, a humble posture. You see him confessing his sins. You see him, you know, coming and begging for, for mercy. I think it's legit. I think he's, he's sincere. I think he's just like so many of us that, you know, we're cold, we're hot, we're cold, we're hot. I mean, right now he's just coming and he's, he's confessing. And, and I think it's a legitimate repentance. And this is, the, this is the exclamation part right now. Verse 21, Abishai. Now, Abishai's the guy that the first time when they were heading out of Jerusalem and Shimei was cursing him and throwing rocks, what did Abishai say to David? He's like, let me put this guy out of our misery right now. Let me take this guy out. David's like, no, he wouldn't let him then. Well, what's he do now? Abishai, the son of Zariah, answers. He says, shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. Please, man, you didn't let me do it before. Let me kill him out. Let me, let me take him out now. And David said, what have I to do with you, sons of Zariah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Loose translation, get behind me, Satan. I ain't doing that, right? Shall any man, this is David's word, be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? And therefore the king said to Shimei, you shall not die and the king swore to him, hey, he ain't going to die. All of this to wrap up saying this. God wants the throne of your heart. Absolutely wants the throne of your heart. And he offers to you today forgiveness, pardon, reconciliation. It just comes to the point of you saying, I'm either going to today recognize that I bet on the wrong horse and that I've let the wrong person on the throne of my heart, whatever, whoever it is, and I need to surrender and I need to invite Jesus, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings to take the rightful place in my heart. All comes down to the place you're either going to do that or you're not. And I'm going to give you an invitation to do that. And I pray, listen, that you'd hear the word of God. There's a gal by the name of uh, Marganita Lasky. She's an English novelist. She has the dubious distinction of having carded over a quarter of a million quotations in Oxford's uh, English Dictionary. Sharp gal. Renowned atheist. She died back in the 80s. Maybe even in the 70s. I think in the 80s, like 87 or something. Right before she died, she said this. Again, an atheist. She said, what I admire about you Christians is your forgiveness. She said, I have no one to forgive me. She's wrong. Sadly, she died with that belief. I pray you don't die with that belief because you have someone that wants to forgive you, who died for you, and who offers you today life.